You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a paper from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. This online workshop re-examined ancient perceptions of nature, power and power over nature to better understand our current environmental crisis. The workshop, which was organised by Matthew Mandich and Giacomo Savani, took place on the 26th of February 2021. This episode features the keynote address, which was given by Kyle Harper from the University of Oklahoma. His lecture, Microbes and the Ancient Anthropocene, was introduced by Matthew Mandich. A video of this lecture, including the slides used by the speaker, is available on the UCD Humanities Institute's YouTube channel. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Carl Harper, who is a professor of classics and letters at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Harper is a historic history and environmental history. His work has spanned economic, environmental, and social history, and he is the author of three books, Slavery in the Late Roman World, AD 275 through 425, From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality, and The Fate of Rome, Climate Disease and the End of an Empire, which has been translated into 12 languages. He is currently writing a new book, A Global History of Infectious Diseases, titled Plagues Upon the Earth, which is due out later this year. So with that, uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Harper. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Giacomo, very much for inviting me to participate and for your amazing work in organizing uh, this conference, despite the, the headwinds of a global pandemic. Uh, in addition to all the normal complexities of, of herding uh, scholars together. But I also want to really thank the, the fellow participants for such an amazing set of stimulating and, and um, wide-ranging talks coming at the, these important questions from so many different angles. Uh, I found it a really illuminating day. Uh, and I'm very uh, honored to get to talk about uh, my ongoing work on the, the history of infectious disease. Uh, and in terms of a concept that I think is is very challenging for us as scholars of ancient culture and ancient history. And so today the, the theme really is microbes and the Anthropocene. And I'll spend a little bit of time defining both of those, particularly thinking about what a, what a pathogenic or disease-causing microbe is. Uh, and the Anthropocene, this proposed new geological epoch that, that we uh, presumably now have made and inhabit. And the important connections between the, the microbial world and the, the Anthropocene uh, concept. So trying to bring those two into conversation and particularly then to do it um, in dialogue with the, the very challenging question of whether or not the Anthropocene has relevance for ancient historians. Is there an ancient Anthropocene? And if not, um, which in some ways I think um, not, what does it mean nonetheless for those of us who, who do ancient history and care about the concept of the Anthropocene? So that's the, that's the theme. And I wanted to start by defining a little bit the, the concept of the Anthropocene. And Matt gave a great overview at the beginning uh, of the, the workshop today. And it's an idea that's about 20 years old. It was born in Mexico City in 2000 at a meeting of what is known as the International Geosphere Biosphere Program. Uh, and I can't help but um, have a little bit of Oklahoma patriotism. You can see the chair of the IGBP at that time was 
uh, a dear friend of mine and colleague here at the University of Oklahoma, an atmospheric scientist, Marion Moore. Uh, and at that conference, one of the participants, Paul Crutzen, uh, in, a, in a kind of uh, peak of annoyance at the um, sort of, I don't know, blasé uh, way in which we think about geological epics and the, the environmental challenges that we've created, um, suggested this, this term uh, that has just taken off over the last two decades informally. And so uh, it's perfectly fine to use it uh, informally. I think it, it, people recognize that it's a way of, of affirming the really fundamental influence of human beings on the Earth system. Uh, and it's also more formally uh, being considered by the, the body of scientists that are charged with the, the keeping of uh, official geological epochs and their naming. Um, so there is a working group that's been working for over a decade now known as the Anthropocene Working Group uh, that is a working group of the International Commission on Stratigraphy, which in turn is a, uh, an entity uh, within the International Union of Geological Sciences. So eventually this is snaking its way through a, uh, a cumbersome uh, evaluation process and will be voted on by the, by the geologists uh, who are the, the gatekeepers of the, the nomenclature of, uh, of planetary epochs. So the Anthropocene is the proposed uh, geological epoch that would probably be set to begin sometime in the mid 20th century uh, that is defined by uh, instability and human dominance uh, as a biogeochemical force. And here you see um, a, a representation, the, the top, the dark line uh, is human numbers, um, showing the, the Pleistocene epoch, which is the um, long series of, of um, ice ages and interglacials uh, during which most of human history takes place. Uh, the last 11,700 years known as the Holocene, uh, which is the, the time period when most of uh, what we think of as history in terms of um, written, record of human cultures um, takes place, and then the proposed Anthropocene, uh, the very recent period dominated by human population. So uh, human beings now number about 7.8 billion. And then you see two signatures of this. The blue line is uh, annual rates of change in uh, the load of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and the red is methane. So measured uh, here in terms of greenhouse gases, it's a, a pretty uh, alarming and, and visually striking representation of the suddenness uh, of human influence on the Earth system. Um, there are other ways besides atmospheric chemistry to think about um, human influence, human impact, human dominance. Um, other tracers that are likely to be important in defining the Anthropocene uh, include radionuclides, which are uh, going to be permanently left in the Earth's crust, whatever happens to, to humanity, uh, and therefore probably going to be an appealing criterion for the kind of very objective uh, chemical, physical markers that geologists tend to prefer as, uh, as indications of changes in geological epoch. Another are synthetic materials like plastics um, that are an artifact of the, the growth of human uh, population and economic processes, and you see represented uh, here as well. Um, the chronology of the Anthropocene, as I referred to, is, is debatable. Uh, and it's, like I say, it's very likely that it will be uh, the nomenclature will recognize the, the great acceleration of human impact at the mid 20th century. Uh, but this is only one way to conceive of it, even uh, if that does end up being the formal way. And there's um, a robust discussion about uh, the, the backstory or earlier datings of the Anthropocene. You can see here a really wonderful paper by John Brooke and Christopher Otter uh, advocating for a kind of early modern Anthropocene that precedes the, the mineral Anthropocene in the last two centuries. Uh, others, like William Rudiman, argued for 
uh, an even deeper Anthropocene uh, that begins with Neolithic um, land use and agriculture. And then there's uh, a sense in which human uh, impact on the environment is, is rooted even deeper in our hominin past, um, going back to the invention of fire maybe a million and a half years ago uh, by ancestral hominins like Homo erectus. Um, that really is a, a distinguishing uh, feature of, of human biology and human culture. Uh, the mastery of fire in some ways gives humanity uh, an upper hand over nature that is relatively unlike any other species on the planet. So there's different ways of conceiving of the, the chronology of the Anthropocene uh, and, depend, and defining and measuring uh, what the Anthropocene is. The dimension of the Anthropocene that I'm talking about today really focuses on the biosphere and humanity's relationship to um, other living organisms with whom we share the planet. And a recent Anthropocene um, can think of human impact on the biosphere in terms of loss of biodiversity. So we're living through uh, a phase of extinction in which uh, other organisms are going extinct at a rate that's um, two to three orders of magnitude above the background level or normal um, rate of extinction that's very much driven by uh, human land use, resource usage, extraction, um, and contamination of the environment. Um, that's not the only way in which humanity is driving the biosphere. Of course, we uh, are great um, um, genetic engineers, um, certainly going back to the Neolithic revolution and driving changes in uh, preferred species. Here you see a, a proposal that one marker of the Anthropocene should be considered the domesticated chicken. So this is a representation of the size of chickens. Um, the chicken is now the most numerous bird on the planet. There are 23 billion of them. Uh, and since the mid 20th century, they've become in a sense unnaturally big uh, because they've been biologically engineered by humans to produce um, big, fat, fleshy, white uh, breast meat that, that we like to eat. Um, and that's just one example of the way in which humans intentionally direct evolution. We can think of um, episodes like the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which is caused by a novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, uh, as an unintentional uh, form of evolution, as a, as a reaction of nature um, to, to human dominance of the environment. And in that sense, at least COVID-19 is, um, I think, rightly considered a, an Anthropocene event. But um, like so much of the Anthropocene, it's, it's a part of a deeper pattern uh, that I want to trace in today's talk. Microbes have a really intimate and profound relationship with the Anthropocene. And in a sense, um, the control of pathogenic microbes is the most important proximate cause of the Anthropocene. That is that um, humans eventually um, gain control over infectious disease and the resultant uh, population growth is one of probably the most important proximate cause of humanity's dominance of the, the um, planetary environment. Here you see a representation of um, the modern increase in life expectancy. You can see represented the five continents um, in 1820 with incomes on a log scale along the x-axis. Uh, everywhere on earth uh, prior to the industrial revolution, life was short. It was short because most people died most of the time of infectious diseases. So um, in pre-industrial times, probably three-fourths of all people, uh, even in ordinary times, so we're not talking about in, in sort of plague years, um, when it would have been higher, but even in ordinary times, most people died of infectious disease, um, respiratory diseases, diarrheal diseases, um, and so on. But human control over infectious disease um, leads to a longer lifespan. Uh, it's also intimately tied up with the great enrichment or the increase in uh, per capita incomes that's dependent on the usage of finite ecological resources. Uh, and the control of infectious disease causes human population to skyrocket. So here you can see some of the major interventions 
Um, the plague is one of the first infectious diseases to be controlled more or less by quarantine and isolation uh, in Western Europe from the early 18th century, um, smallpox inoculation and then genarian vaccination, germ theory that allows um, um, vaccination to become a more systematic science, uh, hygiene, pharmaceuticals, DDT for mosquito controls that brings malaria partly under control, uh, and then therapeutic interventions like oral rehydration therapy, which is um, a huge lifesaver, um, causes human numbers to skyrocket. And it is, in fact, the decline of mortality driven by the control of infectious disease that causes population to grow. And the simplest way to, to realize this is just to recognize that, in fact, fertility falls. It doesn't fall as fast as mortality. Um, but uh, human numbers don't multiply so rapidly because people are having more babies. Um, in fact, they start having less babies eventually. Um, it's just that we live so much longer. Uh, and without the, the powerful demographic control of infectious disease, um, human numbers skyrocket. So all this to say that microbes have a very uh, important relationship with the regulation of human numbers and the control of uh, pathogenic microbes, control but never complete um, dominance as COVID-19 has, has painfully reminded us uh, is really the proximate cause for modern demographic expansion. So why then are microbes relevant for the ancient Anthropocene? Even if the Anthropocene proper is recent, which I think is a reasonable position and very likely to be the, the official one, um, we do need a backstory, a history that tells us how we got here, um, that looks for the, the roots uh, taken that ultimately uh, led to human dominance of the, the environment. And I think the knowledge that we are inhabit a world where we may be pushing the planet beyond sustainable boundaries should shape the way we understand and explore history. And as we've seen throughout today's many contributions, the ancient Anthropocene is multidimensional. It's about changing patterns of land use. It's about new technologies, uh, new materials, uh, as well as ideologies, conceptions of humanity's relationship with nature. Um, the, the dimension that, that I'll explore today is about evolutionary responses um, to human ecological transformation, human, humans driving intentionally and unintentionally evolution in other organisms, whether that's domesticates, um, like the cows that get so much bigger under the Roman Empire, uh, or the, the horses um, that are so selectively bred um, in the later phases of classical antiquity, whether it's commensal animals, uh, like the black rat or the housefly uh, that respond uh, to, to the opportunities created by human expansion, whether it's our impact on wild animals uh, or our impact on parasitic animals, especially uh, microbial parasites. And so I would argue we can take microbes as one important register of humanity's ecological embeddedness and nature's responsiveness to human expansion. And antiquity is an important phase of this. And I think we can um, see this if we sort of zoom out and do a kind of history that's um, consilient, that brings in the social sciences, natural sciences, even I should add the fine arts uh, as, we've, as we've certainly um, seen today. And it's a kind of history in which nature limits and shapes human agency. And I think um, it's okay to be um, un, unashamed of, of saying that. Um, sometimes people get concerned about determinism and no one wants to uh, be reductive and underestimate the, the complexity of human relationships with nature and the resilience of human societies. But I also think that it's, um, it's important that we recognize that, uh, that nature does limit and shape human agency, particularly in the deep past. Uh, I love this quote of John McNeil that people made their own history, but they didn't make it as they pleased because ecology would not let them. Uh, paraphrasing Marx, of course. So this is a kind of history in which diseases matter. They shape and constrain human action. Uh, but it's also one in which humans shape the ecology of pathogen evolution. So nature isn't something that happens. 
Um, to us, it's something in which we're embedded. And uh, the, the rise of our disease pool, uh, I think, tells that story. And finally, I think it's important to realize that human agency vis-a-vis -vis, uh, infectious disease changes historically. And ancient societies were frankly um, less equipped um, to, to grapple with the challenges of infectious disease. Uh, and as we're seeing in COVID-19, uh, a, a disease that really isn't um, as deadly as smallpox or uh, um, um, the bubonic plague, um, what a challenge, even with the, the technical tools we have uh, at our disposal, what a powerful force infectious disease is in human history. This is a kind of history in which genomes uh, are an important source of evidence, a kind of archive. Phylogenies are the family trees of organisms, any organism, but including microbial organisms that can tell us about how they evolved, what other organisms they're related to, can tell us about the geography of where diseases come from, can tell us about the chronology of when diseases emerge. And I'll give some, some examples of this in just a moment. Um, and those are the kinds of insights about the past that we can gain from uh, knowledge of the, the genomes of our pathogens, even if we only have modern genomes. But we live at a really exciting moment when the, the study of ancient DNA or paleogenomics, that is the, the sequencing of genetic material that's recovered from archaeological samples, is allowing us to, to experience what's been called genetic time travel, going back to the past and recovering the, the specific microbes that were present at specific uh, layers of the human past. It's also been called uh, an evolutionary photo album. It's like a, a picture, a snapshot uh, of the organisms that existed in the past. So this is a kind of history that uh, even in the kind of evidence that it uses can weave together both traditional and new kinds of scientific archives. Um, this is a little bit basic. Um, and I'll, I'll go through this fast, but I did want to um, just underscore some of the really fundamental elements of what causes infectious disease, um, which is any kind of state of impaired health that is caused by uh, a microbial invader. The absence of disease is not the same thing as health, although particularly in pre-modern societies, uh, infectious diseases were the most important determinant of health and certainly of mortality. Uh, in pre-modern times, uh, as said, uh, a range of diseases accounted for the vast majority of deaths. Humans face diseases that are caused by microbial agents in a range of different taxa, including viruses like uh, the agent of coronavirus, bacteria that cause diseases from tuberculosis to plague, uh, protozoa that cause diseases like malaria, uh, as well as worms um, that cause diseases like schistosomiasis. You can see pictured there. Infectious diseases. Um, to understand infectious diseases, to understand that humans are part of the, the web of animal life and humans have diseases that are specialized in the human host. Um, these evolved from uh, pathogens that infected other hosts, sometimes domestic animals, sometimes wild animals like COVID-19. Sometimes they adapt the ability to infect humans uh, and become human diseases. Other times they remain animal diseases that can still um, infect and cause disease in humans, even though we're not uh, the natural host. So coronavirus uh, evolves from a wild animal, probably a bat, uh, and has adapted very well to transmit between humans. Other diseases like plague um, can pass between humans, but never really becomes a human disease. It's uh, from start to finish uh, a disease or a pathogen of, of rodents who are its natural reservoir host. But uh, diseases, uh, infectious diseases are one of the ways in which we're really part of the web of animal life. I think the history of disease can help us denaturalize the, the experience of health and disease um, and uh, help us realize that people are strange, to, to quote the doors, 
Um, that's just a, an objective uh, fact of natural history. If you look at um, the parasite burdens faced by other uh, animals, particularly other mammals, particularly other primates, humans are really strange. We have a strange number of diseases. We have lots of them. We have really nasty diseases. There are, of course, some horrific uh, animal diseases, um, but we have an unusual number of really virulent diseases. And we have a very strange number of diseases that are have a narrow host range that are very evolutionarily specialized uh, in the infection of, of humans. Uh, and um, the, the most striking example comes from really comparing us to our closest uh, relative, the chimpanzee, um, and realizing that we have lots of bacterial diseases, lots of viral diseases, lots of um, diarrheal and respiratory diseases that are very specifically, um, very, very committed to the infection of us. And the basic reason why is because of ecological uh, transformation that humans have carried out over the course of our history. So we're, uh, unlike other primates, we live in massive groups. Um, chimpanzees are quite social primates. Our closest relatives and our uh, own ancestors would have lived in groups, but uh, for chimps, a big group is about 150. And that's a very um, important limit on the kind of diseases that can emerge, evolve, and, and permanently circulate. Moreover, um, chimpanzees are quite numerous um, for primates, um, even though they're um, endangered. Um, but there are only a few hundred thousand of them. There are uh, now 7.8 billion of us. Um, and that's only scratching the surface of the ways in which humans are unique ecologically. Um, we've surrounded ourselves with domesticated and commensal animals who also take advantage uh, of our um, expansion and whose diseases we often catch and suffer. So um, throughout our history, humans have reshaped the, the ecology of infectious disease and nature responds with the evolution, with the emergence of um, new threats to human health. This is a part of a deep pattern that even precedes the Neolithic, but gathers pace, particularly um, starting 10 to 11,000 years ago when humans learned to engineer plants um, and, and invent agriculture. Uh, very important phase in the history of disease that I'm going to draw uh, a few examples today to talk about measles, smallpox, and plague as examples of the kind of diseases that emerge um, in uh, the period of states and empires as human societies scale up. Um, diseases respond to the new uh, opportunities we present them. And this is a history that continues right on through um, the, the medieval, early modern, and modern worlds. But I want to focus on um, the, the horse icon there and think about some of the diseases that emerge in antiquity and what we can know about why. Um, I'm going to actually skip that one. Let me, let me talk about um, a first disease and um, one where we're learning, thanks very much to genetic evidence. Um, the ways in which human expansion drives um, the disease ecology and the evolution uh, of infectious diseases. This is a study that came out last summer. It was put together by a really remarkable team of microbiologists. Um, I was a very small but enthusiastic contributor to this um, paper, but Arian Dukes and um, Phil Lamy and Sebastian Kalvinyak Spencer and others um, were able to, to recover the oldest yet recovered measles virus genome from the early 20th century from a, a lung tissue that had been preserved in formaldehyde um, that allowed um, the, the measles virus um, genome to be sequenced uh, and to, to calibrate the, the story of its emergence as a human pathogen. So on the top panel, um, you see uh, a representation of the family tree of measles. It's a morbillivirus. Its closest relative is that one with the cow, the rinderpest virus, um, which is a very nasty um, disease of, of cattle. Uh, and its closest relative is known as the um, Pestipetite ruminant virus, which is a 
uh, a, a virus of caprines. Um, and we now understand that the, the evolutionary split, so the red dot um, between renderpest and measles, which represents the adaptation of the measles virus to humans, occurred around 2,500 years ago. So the red um, plot on the top is the, the probability distribution that tells us broadly that, um, that the measles virus emerges around what we think of as being the, the Iron Age in the Mediterranean, although I would underscore we don't know exactly where the measles virus emerged. Now, this is interesting because the measles virus is a pretty extraordinary virus. We're the only known host, so measles virus can't um, circulate in other animals. It's extremely contagious, um, and uh, it's quite a serious disease. It's now, of course, um, been greatly reduced thanks to uh, a very effective vaccine. But measles is so contagious and confers resistance uh, um, among people who survive infection that it requires huge populations to survive. So measles virus will go extinct almost immediately anywhere there's not 250,000 people. Uh, and so that's considered the popular, critical population threshold for measles virus. Now, what makes this interesting for a historian, if you look at the bottom chart, all of those dots are cities. The, the dotted line running horizontally is the critical population threshold, 250,000. And then the timeline is the same as the top chart. You can see that as the cities get bigger uh, and past that critical population threshold is exactly when, in broad terms, the measles virus uh, emerges. So what this says is that the measles virus specializes in becoming a human pathogen just as humans build cities um, that are big enough to sustain its transmission. So this is a really interesting example where human archives and genetic archives come together and tell us uh, a story about one of the ways in which nature evolution responds uh, through the, the emergence of a parasite uh, on human growth and success. Um, this is a story that's replicated over and over with great killers, whether it's Falciparum malaria, tuberculosis, bubonic plague, all of which are in fact quite recent um, um, organisms. These are not entities, these are not um, organisms that have existed time out of mind. Um, these are organisms that, that emerge on um, relatively recent human timescales and that uh, we increasingly can see in some and in various senses are a product of human history itself. This kind of knowledge of the diseases um, that were around in their history helps us start to paint uh, at least a, a rough picture of what diseases were around in the period that, that I studied, the Roman Empire. And it's very hard to know what diseases were around. It's really an enormous methodological challenge. But... Uh, it's one that's best tackled through uh, the, the combination of different kinds of sources. So textual sources that provide written evidence for the kinds of diseases that were around. And this sometimes um, very valuable, whether it's disease like malaria, bubonic plague, um, that have very um, specific clinical symptoms. Other times, bioarchaeology. Most infectious diseases are acute and don't leave um, a trace in the skeletal record. Um, but um, other important diseases, namely tuberculosis, leprosy, which you see an example of here, uh, are chronic and do um, leave traces. And it's pretty clear that the, the Roman Empire has a very interesting history with both tuberculosis and leprosy. Ancient DNA, the recovery and sequencing of the actual biomolecules from ancient pathogens. Um, the kind of evidence that I was using earlier, the family tree, the evolutionary trees, um, that tells us what, how old diseases are. Uh, comparison with more recent pre-industrial societies, uh, and then potentially even the human genome, since uh, the pressure of infectious disease drives adaptation in the human genome. Um, I think increasingly you'll see that um, we're able, as we get a greater number of ancient human genomes, to see how humans evolve 
um, in response to the pressure um, that's applied by infectious diseases. To take one very brief example, um, many Mediterranean populations have red blood cell disorders, thalassemias, um, that are an adaptive response to the pressure of malaria. And as we get more ancient genomes, I think we're gonna get a much better picture of when, where, and how um, thalassemia emerges um, under pressure from malaria. So we sort of know some of the diseases that were around in the Roman Empire, certainly multiple kinds of malaria, a range of fecal oral, diarrheal diseases, respiratory diseases, um, parasites, so macroparasites, worms. We also know diseases that weren't there, syphilis, modern smallpox, polio, AIDS. There are other diseases we don't know, typhus, influenza, um, important diseases that we'd like to know more about their history. We also know that the Romans have a very interesting history with epidemic disease. So if an endemic disease is a disease that is permanently present in a population, an epidemic is a sudden increase in the prevalence of a disease, often attended by heightened mortality. And epidemics happen when uh, a pathogen pathogenic agent, so when a, a disease-causing microbe um, is able to circulate in a population of susceptible hosts. This can happen for a range of biological and social reasons, um, changes in human population due to hunger or war uh, or changes in immunity, diseases like smallpox that are very contagious um, um, in more modern times, circulated in epidemic cycles because um, they confer resistance. And so enough people had to be born and moved to cities. Uh, and you can see the, the actual beautiful regularity of this terrible um, cycle of smallpox disease where its, its epidemics were highly predictable. Um, and then changes in pathogens. So the evolution of new pathogens um, that can, can cause epidemics or the introduction of pathogens to places where it was previously absent. Here you see um, one of the really remarkable figures of the 19th century, William Budd, who figured out that um, typhoid was not caused by pollution or environmental uh, um, filth, but the specific introduction uh, of a disease element. And in the very year he died, um, the typhoid bacterium itself was discovered. So um, epidemics are sudden increases in the prevalence of disease that are uh, often caused, uh, attended by mortality. The Roman Empire sees, uh, of course, um, not only a number of epidemics, but a number of really major pandemics. A pandemic is uh, a, an interregional, think of an intercontinental mortality event um, that's, that's just a giant epidemic. Uh, and um, some of the most important and most visible in the, the written and archeological record, the Antonine Plague, the Plague of Cyprium, and then the Justinian Plague. I'm gonna talk briefly about the Antonine Plague and the Justinian Plague as examples of, uh, of evolutionary response to, to the environments that human beings create. So I'll start with the Antonine Plague, which is um, the first of these pandemics um, that appears very suddenly in the middle of the 160s and um, is described by a number of contemporary observers as a highly destructive pandemic. Uh, and then recurs several times uh, over the next generation. And then we don't hear much uh, about uh, infectious disease mortality from uh, pandemics for, for several generations. So this is, this is kind of a, a one generation event as we know it in the record. We don't know what caused it because we haven't found the, the genome of, its, uh, of the pathogen that caused it yet. Um, it's possible that we'll find it. Um, so we're forced to rely on the much less certain uh, method of retrospective diagnosis using the text that we have to try and uh, identify the, the cause. And we're fortunate in that the great Dr. Galen of the second and third century was alive at the time of the Antonine Plague and describes uh, a black extrusive rash that covered the body um, that scabbed and scarred with a very slow course of disease um, and sometimes was clearly hemorrhagic. Most people have thought that this is smallpox, um, 
um, but there, there are also reasons to be cautious. Um, um, I can talk more about that if there's interest. We don't know this with absolute certainty, so it's very uh, important to be cautious about that diagnosis until we have certain evidence. Um, and there are certain problems in, the, in Galen's description um, that they're not insurmountable, but, but at least leave a little bit of doubt. Um, nonetheless, what we're learning about the history of smallpox, even without the DNA of the, the virus, it is a DNA virus um, from the second century, I think has made this diagnosis more plausible. Um, here you see the, the phylogeny of smallpox. It was published by Muleman et al. in 2020. That um, was based on the discovery of what they call Viking Age, um, so 8th, 9th, 10th century smallpox from Northern Europe um, that is very clearly a form of human smallpox that's uh, a sister clade or a kind of um, lost branch of the variola virus that caused modern smallpox. And you can see that ancient smallpox and modern smallpox, so the Viking smallpox and the smallpox that we know from modern times, all shared a common ancestor around 300 AD, and that's a broad estimate, um, which would put the, the emergence of this virus as a human disease pretty squarely within the, the Roman period, which is, uh, I think, very interesting and certainly uh, provides further circumstantial evidence that the Antonine Plague may have been um, uh, a disease event that represents the evolution of one of the really important pathogens in human history, smallpox. More could be said about that. There's other evidence from the fourth to sixth century for smallpox-like disease that's an important part of that story as well. If that's true, it's interesting because we know that the closest relatives of smallpox, I don't know if you can see my cursor, are here, camel pox virus and tetera pox virus, which only infects this little guy, the naked soul gerbil, which is a rodent that only lives in the savannas of Africa. Uh, and camel disease, the naked soul gerbil disease, suggests that smallpox may have emerged somewhere, oops, in um, Central Africa um, around 1700, two years ago, 1700 years ago, um, give or take. We know that the Romans were um, strongly interconnected with the Indian Ocean world, trading for silk, spices, um, and precious metals, slaves, uh, aromatics. Um, this was a, a robust trade network. It would have also been a network for the exchange of in infectious diseases. And so I think that um, the, the Antonine Plague is very likely not just a Roman uh, disease event, but is really probably an old world disease event. Um, we wish we knew a lot more about um, the, the Chinese sources, but there is some evidence that this was um, present as far away as East Asia. And certainly there's um, inscriptional evidence for major outbreak of infectious disease in Arabia and Sabaic inscriptions just before the Antonine Plague. So I think this really is a, a pandemic uh, in this bigger sense, triggered by the evolution uh, of a new pathogen, a virus, that's able to circulate very quickly over human-created um, trade networks. This is in the second century. We also know, and in this case with absolute certainty, that the history of the Roman Empire comes to intersect the plague, the bubonic plague, the disease caused by the bacterial agent Yersinia pestis. This is a, a pathogen that really is in a class by itself. Um, when, when you study the history of infectious disease, um, there's sort of bubonic plague and um, everything else. It was the agent of three historic pandemics. Um, the boundaries of these have become a little bit fuzzier, but the first pandemic is what we call um, the series of disease outbreaks that began uh, under Justinian in 541 and continue on and off um, down to the second half of the eighth century. Then the plague disappears from, um, from certainly the, the Western Eurasian and North African record 
uh, for a period of six centuries before reappearing with tremendous ferocity in the middle of the 14th century, causing the Black Death, which is um, arguably the, the greatest um, biological shock in the history, the recorded history of humanity um, that kills something like 50% of the population of much of the Near East and Europe and North Africa. Its impact in Asia, East Asia and South Asia uh, and Africa is the object of a great deal of very interesting research at present. The second pandemic isn't just the Black Death, though. Um, and over the period of the next almost four centuries, um, the disease recurs throughout um, Western Eurasia and North Africa. And it remains throughout that entire period the most deadly disease. So even in 17th century England, um, which was less affected by bubonic plague than, say, continental Europe, um, the bubonic plague is a disease unlike any other. The, the mortality uh, rates that it's capable of causing uh, are unparalleled. And then uh, in the course of the 19th century, this date is conventional, but it's a little bit misleading because um, the third pandemic becomes visible to Europeans in Hong Kong in 1894, but it had been raging in South China um, for about a century before that. Uh, it killed tens of millions of people um, in China, 12 million people in India, um, but through tremendous exertion of international effort um, is uh, largely kept out of, uh, of most of Europe, um, is, with the exception of a minor outbreak in San Francisco, is kept out of the United States. And so the third pandemic um, is really controlled um, through biomedical and political interventions um, in, in much of the world, um, but nonetheless provided an important opportunity to study the biology of the plague. Here you see um, the, the French scientist Alexander Yerson, uh, who's an acolyte of Louis Pasteur, uh, who um, was one of the first discoverers of the bacterium. Plague is an amazing uh, disease. And one of the things that makes it what it is, is it's really an animal disease. It doesn't care about us. Um, this is why it has um, really no remorse about killing humans because it doesn't rely on us for its evolutionary persistence. We're an accident. Um, and it's a vector-borne disease. Um, it's transmitted by flea bite um, and has all the, the efficiency of, uh, of a vector-borne disease. But unlike, say, malaria that's caused by mosquito bite, um, fleas are cosmopolitan. They can go anywhere. Um, plague is one of the most complex diseases um, in its ecology. So it's um, permanently present in um, maintenance hosts, generally uh, rodents that are burrowing rodents that live in colonies underground, like marmots, gerbils, voles, gerboas, um, and that have a certain degree of resistance against the disease. Um, human outbreaks are sparked when the pathogen is introduced somehow to the commensal rodent, the black rat, um, that is very susceptible to the disease. The plague spreads rapidly throughout populations of black rats uh, who live in close proximity to humans. Um, and when the black rats start to die in number, their fleas um, decide to, to um, drink human blood, which isn't the first choice, but it'll do when you're starving. Uh, and as they do, transmit the, the bacterium to humans. There's still a great deal of debate about how important direct transmission is between humans, either um, through aerosol droplets uh, or through human lice and fleas. Uh, it's my view that the evidence for that uh, is quite ambiguous, although pneumonic plague, so the droplet transmission, respiratory transmission of plague, uh, probably did play some role. Um, the, the rodent flea dynamic was probably the most important and human lice and fleas, uh, probably the least important of those mechanisms of a human outbreak, which is a great 
um, ecological accident. Plague itself is a horrific, deadly disease that causes various courses of illness. The most notorious is bubonic plague. Um, it's characterized by hard lumps of, of um, pus that um, are infected lymph nodes filled with bacteria. Uh, it also um, causes septicemia or pollution of the blood, uh, as well as infection of the lungs, pneumonic plague. Plague is a disease whose history is um, now being informed by paleogenomics. It's the richest um, um, pathogen in terms of the, the amount and importance of the study of its genomes. Um, it's not a terribly ancient disease, so it becomes Ypestis within the last 6,000 years. At the beginning, it doesn't have all the genes that, that would eventually get, um, but it, in the Bronze Age, uh, acquires all of the genes that, that make it um, the agent of the, the first and second pandemic. One of the, the kind of um, important questions, we don't know why it takes so long um, from the acquisition of all the genetic factors, um, ultimately to cause the Justinian plague. A big part of that, probably not the only piece of it, but a major part of it probably is the spread of the black rat, which is very much um, a byproduct of human urbanization, trade, uh, and grain production and storage. So the black rat, a commensal organism that we can follow through zooarchaeology, um, that is a, is a creature that exists already in the early Neolithic, but that very much spreads in the later Neolithic and particularly in the Iron Age. So throughout the Mediterranean, most of Europe, um, the introduction and spread of the black rat um, really doesn't happen uh, until about the period of the, the Romans. So the black rat spread sort of builds the ecological platform for the disease to become the, the agent of these great historic pandemics. When it does appear in the middle of the sixth century, it is absolutely crystal clear from the written evidence that this is um, the most singular biological shock that uh, anyone alive um, could ever see. And to me as a historian, this is one of the really uh, important features of the written record for the Justinianic plague. I'm really a historian of the fourth century. The fourth century is the, the best attested period of all of antiquity. There are no pandemics in the fourth century. There's no plague. Same with the fifth century. There's nothing like this. First half of the sixth century, same. Then all of a sudden in 541, in Latin, in Greek, in Syriac, uh, sources who don't know each other, um, sources who see the world in very different terms, some in Christian terms, some in pagan or at least classicizing terms, um, tell us that this disease very clearly described as uh, bubonic plague uh, arrived and caused terrific um, demographic loss in both urban and rural areas. The written record in the East is very good. Um, the written record in the Latin West is very, very patchy. Um, and this creates genuine um, difficulties in understanding um, how far the, the plague spread, uh, particularly in the West. Um, and equally important is really trying to understand the pandemic as a whole, because the, the first outbreak under Justinian um, was, was, I think, clearly catastrophic. Um, but then the plague doesn't just go away. It clearly um, somehow seemed to establish itself probably in local rodent reservoirs. So there are marmots um, in Italy. Um, there's a huge number of, of potential hosts in, um, in Anatolia and the Balkans. Um, plague becomes local and then it spills out of its new reservoir hosts um, irregularly. I hate calling these waves. Um, here you see um, Biraben and Lagoff's um, effort to, to describe these very coherent waves. Um, I think that's um, sort of a Rorschach test. Um, what we do know is that it recurred regularly, sometimes in big outbreaks, sometimes in very local outbreaks. For more than two centuries, 
Um, and we have every reason to believe that the best parallel for this comparatively is the second pandemic when for 400 years, um, the bubonic plague in Europe um, certainly was the dominant demographic force. So we're dependent on um, written sources like John of Ephesus and Procopius of Caesarea. Um, but now we have ancient DNA that can confirm the diagnosis of the disease. Um, and um, you can see here, Peter Saris, I think is right on that the voices speak with one voice in describing the plague as having a major and sudden impact on both rural, urban and rural communities alike. Uh, it was an enormous challenge, um, first of all, simply to bury the bodies, um, but um, the burial of bodies had religious and health significance for those who lived through it. Um, but there are genuine um, challenges in understanding the, the nature and shape of this disease event. Um, as mentioned, Italy only has one written record uh, for the entire first outbreak. So uh, there's a lot that we don't know about the, the first pandemic, particularly in the West. This is one reason why the, the arrival of ancient DNA evidence is absolutely revolutionary. Here you see Mike McCormick's new paper in Speculum, which has a very uh, good understanding of the, the importance of this ancient DNA evidence. It is a small miracle anytime um, that the bacterium that killed someone was circulating in their blood enough, that there was enough of the DNA in the pulp of their tooth, um, and that the dental, uh, the enamel is able to preserve it over 1500 years. It's been able to be recovered and then positively sequenced, um, excluding uh, false positives. So it's a really uh, amazing uh, achievement when we can find ancient DNA of a pathogen. And what's so remarkable about the, the discovery, um, and this, this of course is just um, over a year old now in a paper by Marcel Keller et al, um, of plague in eight different um, sites in Western Europe, is the nature of these sites. Edix Hill is a tiny hamlet of 50, 60, 70 people um, uh, in uh, Anglo-Saxon Britain. And the fact that the plague was able to disperse to places like this is suggestive of its tremendous power. So um, there's there's plenty to, to debate about the Justinian plague, but um, the, the evidence is, is pretty amazing, compelling, and only continues to grow. And that's what's really uh, exciting to me as a historian. This is something that came out even after I published a chapter trying to summarize the Justinian plague in my book a few years ago. This answers one of the biggest unknowns uh, about the plague. Did it get to the West? Did it get to the countryside? Uh, and it's pretty unambiguous that it did. And the written record um, tells this story from a human dimension. I won't read this. This is uh, from a second outbreak in Italy um, by an eyewitness um, preserved by the later historian, Paul the Deacon. It just tells us, and I have been struck reading these in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, where we're living through a pandemic where we can't be with people we love when they're sick, where uh, we can't have funerals um, and, and how anguishing uh, that really is. And it makes you, I think it makes you a different reader of these ancient texts. And I'll, I'll confess that sometimes I read texts like this and you think this is just sort of literary convention. Um, but, but I think it, it's um, more humane to read these slowly and seriously and realize that these were people whose worlds were upended by um, the arrival of, of new pathogens that of course they didn't understand biologically, uh, but they, nonetheless suffered from. So um, um, close by offering the thought that these kinds of disease emergence events, measles, smallpox, plague, um, we can see as the result of the interplay of human expansion and evolution. And that's the deeper pattern that I think helps us understand the Anthropocene and understands the challenge of emerging infectious diseases um, in the Anthropocene. In 1991, the Institute of Medicine commissioned uh, a report that was 
um, led by Joshua Letterberg that was published under the title Emerging Infections, Microbial Threats, and basically says, um, be careful because as humans um, grow in number, become more interconnected, um, as cities grow, as we put more pressure um, on natural resources, deforestation, the rise of ma major agro industry, new diseases are going to emerge. Nature doesn't stand still. Evolution um, will respond to the opportunities that we present it. And so in some ways, it tried to shake us out of our complacency uh, and of course failed to do so. Uh, here you see uh, one way of, of visualizing this. There are seven coronaviruses that are known to infect humans. And you can see that SARS-2, the COVID-19 crisis doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, it's very much a part of a, a deeper pattern of human um, expansion evolutionary response. Um, one of these is caused by the common cold. We get it from um, cattle, um, bovine coronavirus, passes over to humans, um, becomes uh, a major cause of, of the common cold in human populations. We've probably all had um, a coronavirus even before um, COVID-19. And this is very much uh, not something that's purely natural. It's a product of uh, our unique history. So. COVID-19 is the perfect storm. It stands in this unbroken line uh, of disease emergence, including near misses uh, of other pathogens. It could be worse. Um, it's very transmissible. It causes quite a severe disease, um, but um, the disease caused by other coronaviruses are actually worse. And uh, I think one thing we can certainly um, learn from this history is that, um, that SARS-2, the COVID-19 pandemic, won't be our last pandemic. Um, if this is part of a pattern, we have no reason to believe that once we're through this one, um, that uh, there won't be another. And we never know exactly when they're going to happen. Um, and I think we live in a moment where we have to wonder if, in fact, we hadn't been lucky uh, for a period of some decades and being able to avoid this kind of disruptive event, given the pressure that we put on the planet. And my very final thought is that this is a kind of history that I think the humanities has to do um, to, to situate humanity within nature and also remind us that we are one species. And I think the history of health and disease does that in a really powerful way and reminding us that uh, we are connected uh, and uh, our fates are very closely tied, not only to the planet, uh, but to one another. So thank you for your, your time and attention. And uh, if we have any time, I'm happy to take questions. Kyle, thank you very much. Uh, can you please join me in giving uh, our keynote speaker a round of applause? Fantastic, great. Well done. I'll let some of the questions come in here through the chat. Um, but yeah, I had one um, that arose just recently. Well, kind of like a dual thing. First, a comment, just, um, you know, uh, someone who's uh, very interested in ancient urbanism and cities in general, I think, um, you know, the growth of cities and um, the size of cities growing definitely played a, um, a major role in the, the ease of transmission of these uh, for these pandemics. Um, but speaking of that ease of transmission, something that I wanted to just ask about briefly, and, and I'm not sure if there's really any answers to this, but you did touch on a little bit with that Paul the Deacon quote of just kind of an understanding, an ancient understanding of, of microbes, not necessarily microbes, but maybe of, um, of spread and transmission and prevention in the ancient world and what kind of understanding there was of that. Even today with all the science that we have and all the knowledge that we have, we are struggling to even get people to comprehend <laughs> like masking and basic things like this of just about prevention mm -hmm. and spread. Um, what evidence or is there any evidence of an understanding of those processes in antiquity? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I could go on forever, but let me try and uh, be, be very as concise as I can about this. There are 
clearly there are different ways of conceptualizing disease in antiquity. And probably the dominant medical paradigm is humoral. So infectious disease, I'm sorry, disease is caused by an imbalance of the, the four humors that make the body and that connect this materially to the environment. Um, and in that paradigm, it's very hard to describe disease as an infectious um, 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 kind of event or contagion um, as sort of the transmission of disease from one person to another. So um, most of the medical texts don't actually give, give a very clear sense of contagion. However, and then I'd say set to the side too, there's also a very religious conception of disease as well as pestilence. You see this very clearly, for instance, in the Antonine Plague that the, the disease is caused by um, the anger of the god Apollo. And then you see Christianization of this in certain ways. Um, John of Ephesus thinks that the plague of Justinian is kind of an apocalyptic event. It's the, the announcement that the, the final judgment is going to come. Um, so there's a religious way of conceiving of disease. But then um, I think that there, there is an ancient array of ancient sources, a sense of contagion. And I, you know, I don't know if we would want to call this folk knowledge or kind of knowledge that's exists and is widespread, but that is outside of like very clear scientific paradigms. People realize that you can pass disease from, from one person to another. They're surrounded by infectious disease. They have enough um, experience of it. And so you find this, for instance, in places like say ancient veterinary texts where there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of, um, of kind of concern about the, the theory. It's just sort of like, how do I keep my horses from dying? And so if you look at like Vigitius, which is a great text, absolutely is a contagious text. It's just common sense. Every farmer knows if you've got a horse that's sick, or you've got a cow that's sick, you probably want to separate it from the other cows because they'll get sick if you don't. So it's very clear in the veterinary text. It's clear in some medical texts, even where there isn't kind of the paradigm to explain it. But if you look at like Eretheus of Cappadocia, probably writing in the middle of the second century, um, and I was just closely reading his passages on leprosy. Um, or elephantiasis, as they as they call it, um, and he clearly knows it's contagious. Um, they talk, talk about the metadosis, the, the transmission um, uh, of disease from the infected to the uninfected. So I think there's a kind of folk understanding or, or non-scientific understanding that doesn't have a theory, um, and so there isn't really a germ theory. There's there's a famous passage of Vero that does talk about the seeds of contagion, but it's a it's a very isolated um, text. And so there's not a germ theory that can really provide the kind of paradigm to, to account for the facts that they see, but the, the facts themselves had, had allowed people to recognize, hey, disease can pass from one person to another. Excellent, thank you very much, Kyle. Um, I see Gil has his hand up, but I'm just gonna real quickly go to uh, some of the questions in the chat here, and then we'll get to you, Gil, second to that. Just um, wanted to read off one that we had here. So thanks for the lecture, that was fascinating. This question goes both to your lecture tonight and to your uh, book. How did ancient pandemics, uh, such as the Antonine Plague and the Justin Justinianic pandemics reach peripheral regions of the Roman Empire and beyond? Um, as I think there are indications that they did, given the large populations necessary to keep them from burning out. It, it's a good question. And I actually think there's still, there's still a lot we don't know about how far some of these pandemics got. And just to, to take the one that I didn't talk about, the plague of Cyprian that I've worked on a lot, there's not a lot of evidence for it in the North and the far Northwest. So I'm not, I, I just think we don't know if it really, whatever disease it, we also don't know what disease it was, um, got, got kind of outside the core region. 
the Antonine Plague, the evidence is indirect, but it does um, seem like it, it did get you know, to the um, to the far north, like the Adrian's Wall even. Um, certainly there was fear of it in London where we have a nice um, amulet text. Um, so there, there's a difference between um, its ability, the ability of an infectious disease to transmit um, and its ability to become established or to become endemic. So say the Antonine Plague was a form of ancestral smallpox. It was very contagious, um, but that also is a disease that requires a high density of, uh, of humans in order to circulate permanently. The Antonine Plague could have just washed over the empire. And then in a lot of those peripheral regions would not have been able to become established. And so places like Rome or Carthage or Alexandria, Antioch would have been and probably did, whether with this disease or others, kind of act as a as a human reservoir for the circulation of diseases. And we know this much clearer from the early modern period where we have good records. I mentioned William Budd and typhoid. Um, typhoid was endemic in London in the 19th century, and it was not endemic in um, in the West. He was over in like Dorset um, and somewhere over in the south southwest, and out in the out in the middle of nowhere. And the population wasn't big enough for typhoid to be permanent, but then it would get introduced inevitably from somebody coming back from London who picked it up there. They start, you know, um, spreading it and then it will cause a localized epidemic and then it'll disappear again. And in fact, that's the reason why he's actually able to figure out the dynamics of it is because he wasn't in London where there's just so many diseases swirling. You can't really tell what's coming, what's going. So I think the, the Roman empire would have been like other pre-industrial societies. It would have, um, you would have had urban areas where there was a greater number of diseases that were permanently established, but then they kind of spill over um, regularly, but unpredictably into to more peripheral and rural areas. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to go ahead to Gil, and then I'll get back to some of the questions in the chat. Go ahead, Gil. Thanks. Thank you, Carl. Really uh, interesting. Uh, I, of course, would like to think that you are right and people are drinking less wine or less people are drinking good wine. And uh, my uh, you know, little microregion is uh, sinking accordingly, but you're sitting in a perfect position to, to generalize broadly after your book and with this current uh, project. And one thinks, for example, of you know, Purens, uh, uh, Mohammed uh, and Charlemagne. Uh, are you tempted ever or right now to, to try and think especially about the Justinianic plague, where you, you feel to have more confidence and more data, that you can see also the larger scale of the results. What's happening as a result of this first wave and then a century or two of repeated occurrences? And is anything that we see in Europe, right? Uh, North Africa, in the West, after that, can be even explained, not through a Muslim conquest or a barbarian one, but maybe through such terms? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good big question. <laughs> um, the, um, I'd start by saying that the, the Justinian plague, I clearly think was, was a demographic shock um, and you know, killed a, a significant part of the population. It's very hard to, to say, but... Um, but in the entire historical record, the thing that it sounds most like in terms of the written sources is the Black Death. Um, and now we know it's caused by the exact same pathogen. Um, but even so, so even just allow for a second 
allow that 50% of the population dies, um, which is what happens in the Black Death. And it's not the exact same everywhere, of course. You've got places where it's 60%, you've got places where it's 30 40%. Even the Black Death, you've got places where inexplicably it doesn't hit. No, we don't know why it doesn't hit Milan. Um, you know, it's terrible throughout um, central and most of northern Italy. It just doesn't, doesn't get to Milan. They're spared. Um, and that happens in the Justinian plague too. But, but say you have this huge demographic shock. Um, the, you know, the economic and social consequences of that can still be pretty varied. Um, and, and so in some places you may have had a lot of population pressure, um, and losing a lot of the, the population actually isn't necessarily hugely destructive. And again, in the black death, there are, there are examples of that. Um, then you have other places where a demographic shock like that does really affect the, the economic system, either supply or demand. So either the labor supply. Um, and we know this happens in the 14th century in Egypt, where the Black Death kills half the population, and the decline of the labor supply is really catastrophic because the the agricultural economy depends on this complex irrigation system that requires high levels of labor, and so it it creates this really prolonged economic slump. In other cases, and I don't know quite as much good work on this, but I think this is what would interest you: is it's easy to to see how um, shocks to demand. And I think that's, you know, what the, the Fuchs and Barra's paper are getting at a little bit too, is that it may not just be the demographic loss of labor supply in the Negev, but, but, you know, if the population of Constantinople is halved, um, and the, the demand for wine goes down, um, you have a, you have a shock to the demand, um, in the, in the system. And you've got these wealthy landowners who are making money as you're beautifully painting this picture, selling that wine, and there's not as many people to buy it. That really can, I think, very plausibly be a mechanism in which the demographic shock then affects the economic and social uh, affairs on the ground. So um, I've been I've been looking at, at Italy a lot, and I was hoping to have a little more time to get into it. That's why I like this source of Paul the Deacon. Um, the, the sources for Italy aren't quite as good. Um, just because there aren't that many written sources for for sixth century Italy, the ones we have, um, again to to quote Sarah, speak with one voice. So whether it's the sources that are preserved by Paul the Deacon or whether it's Pope Gregory um, the Great, um, um, we have some insights from Gregory of Tours. The the plague is is described as is very catastrophic. Um, but then you know you need to think on the ground. What does that mean for for labor supply, what does it mean for demand? What does it mean for urbanization? Um, I do think that the the evidence in Italy is very consistent with a, a contraction. Part of the challenge of Italy is it was already so unusual in the early Roman period, where you have this extraordinary, unprecedented phase of of history in Italy, where the population is huge, where there's tons of exchange, and that sort of starts to go away in the late second century. And you know why is debated. Um, but then from, and you see this in the new, um, the new publication of the, um, the, by Patterson, Witcher, and Giuseppe, that's the, um, the kind of hinterland of Rome. It's never like that again, but that was a very unnatural circumstance. But if you look at that closely, um, there's again, a kind of shock in the middle of the fifth century with the invasions, but there's another pretty clear shock in the middle of the sixth century. Um, and it's now, you know, pretty, pretty well dated local ceramic series where there's clearly 
some kind of shock. Now, people can say, oh, this is the Lombard Wars, um, the Lombard invasions, and that's probably part of it too. But, um, but I always think that based on later periods of pre-industrial history, diseases are much more powerful um, agents of demographic change, even than, than war, which usually affects people through disease. But in any case, so, you know, I've been looking at Italy. I love, I mean, I've been following a great interest about the, you know, the trash mounds at Elusa, which seem to show pretty, pretty strong rupture in the middle of the sixth century. And then, um, and then one of the, I think the cool things about the, the second PNS paper out of the, the Negev is that, you know, you've got these three villages and one of them seems to like really, really suffer badly in the mid sixth century. One of them, um, you know, it's Nisana that's really hit, right? And there's a shift, uh, I forget which is which off the top of my head. And then another's kind of hit that goes on. And then one of the other ones is just fine. Um, and I don't, to me, that doesn't seem surprising. If you have this kind of shock, um, you can still have very different responses to it. But I think you need both this kind of big picture to know what's going on, but then also the, the micro to understand the mechanisms um, through which it affects people's actual lives. Thank you. I agree. So we had a couple other uh, questions from panelists. Uh, first, uh, Constance, and then uh, Patty. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the presentation, which was extremely interesting. Um, I was wondering about, um, you alluded at the end of the presentation to this sort of reckoning that might be going on now um, as we face um, a pandemic that we uh, might rethink uh, ways of living, ways of um, co-living with animals. Um, and I was wondering from your answer to Matt's question where you talked about this, these different sorts of knowledges about uh, what the disease actually is and how it's transmitted and maybe the Christian perspective, um, how this is um, yeah, a reckoning for um, the unbelieving or the not Christian uh, enough. Um, I was wondering if you have any uh, sources or ideas on how um, this sort of thinking might come in the um, yeah in the aftermath of a pandemic and the aftermath of the Justinianic plague um, of maybe rethinking social structures or uh, cultural habits, especially with regards to animals. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good question. I'll I'll have to think about it um, and and don't have anything um, you know that I think really comes to mind. That's that's a good example of of how they really were, were chastened by this um, and the way they related to, to nature. Um, because I think that the, by and large, the, the ecclesiastical response is, as I was saying, that this is, this is both a, a punishment for sin, um, but then um, when you really read the text closely, they say it's, it's a warning. Um, it's kind of this, this divine um, grace that is kind enough to remind you um, that there is going to be a final judgment. And that's actually really what the sources very specifically say is, is that this is a, this is a warning. And um, I think that probably people who have this religious conception of disease probably also think that there's some kind of mechanism um, that's, that's materialist or natural. Um, and those are not incompatible, right? I mean, even into the 19th century, um, you know, people are the same people will say this is a punishment for sin. And also it's caused by, you know, either environmental 
uh, miasma or infectious disease. So those are not necessarily um, incompatible categories. I think the same is probably true of the ancient sources that they can conceive of this as sort of divine in origin, but also operating through um, whether it's contagion or, or more likely miasma corruption of the, the atmosphere. I think that's even in the religious texts that tends to be the, the dominant understanding of disease is that it's, it's caused by a kind of corruption in the air that, that then causes the humors to go out of balance and it affects everyone at once, which is why it's, it's an epidemic that hits the whole population. Um, but I, I think the, the, what this motivates is, is a call to, um, to repentance, not um, a kind of wiser way to, um, to live in nature. And, and obviously that's a huge difference um, for us where we have a, a scientific understanding of, of why diseases happen and we have within our control the ability to, to choose in a way that maybe they didn't, um, you know, how we, how we feed ourselves, how we, how we treat animals uh, and those kinds of choices that we make. Thank you very much. Uh, Patty, would you go ahead, please, with yours? Uh, thank you. Um, you just answered the question, actually, because uh, you made a comment about the humors, um, that it was more uh, that they didn't have a germ theory. And then I thought of the six non-naturals and air, water, mm -hmm. how they are external. And you just answered it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. There was uh, one more question in the chat here, Kyle. Let me get that for you. Okay, so um, what is your response to the recent revisionist scholarship by Mordecai et al. saying that the Justinianic plague was not as dramatic as we have tended to think? Yeah, I mean, I, I thoroughly disagree with it. Um, I think it's healthy to have, have um, you know, critical disagreements, respectful about what are often very genuinely very challenging questions. I mean, it's, you know, in the Black Death, um, these are hard questions, and the the source base is maybe, I don't know, two orders of magnitude to three orders of magnitude greater. So, you know, the if all that we had to go on the Black Death was just this like handful of chronicle sources, there'd be this great deal of uncertainty. Um, and and that's the the reality of the situation we face is that there's there's legitimate disagreement um, because. There's so much that that we don't know. Um, however, I mean, I, I don't um, I don't find the the revisionist arguments very persuasive. I think everywhere we have um, very close critical reading of the text, um, the the results of those readings are very unambiguous. If you look at Mike McCormick's paper in Speculum 2021, it is absolutely masterful. It is as close a critical reading as you can possibly get of an ancient author looking at Gregory of Tours. And the unequivocal um, outcome of that is when you do look at his language, his worldview, his motives, the sources of his knowledge, this was a disease unlike anything else um, in his landscape. Um, there's other diseases, and then there's the, the power of this singular disease. And, it, and again, it misses, actually, it misses um, his hometown on the first wave. Um, and then it's in the, in the second outbreak that, um, that he really comes face to face with the plague. So that's a beautiful, uh, I think, response to the, to the um, criticisms that I don't find convincing that the, the literary sources don't stand up. Um, and I think that really, if you read closely Procopius, John of Ephesus, of course, they, you know, to read them critically, you just read them carefully, um, but that they provide important eyewitness testimony in totally different worldviews. I mean, Procopius, and John of Ephesus could not be more different 
um, in the way they view the world. One's a, you know, apocalyptic church leader. One's a classicizing um, historian, and they tell exactly the same story. Um, so I think close critical reading points in one direction, and then the other, you know, issue too is the reading of the genetic evidence. Um, I think if you really understand how hard it is to recover um, ancient DNA and um, how remarkable it is that we've now found it from eight different sites, most of them absolute village, you know, hamlets in the middle of nowhere. Um, that's pretty astonishing and is pretty unambiguous. And that, like I say, the big Keller paper came out after my book um, and um, answers, I think, one of the, the really hardest questions because the sources are or thinnest, um, right where this evidence speaks. So um, I think the way you interpret that evidence is important. And I'm not saying it's not capable of different readings. Others others read it more minimally, but um, I, I couldn't have thought of um, stronger evidence for for a reading of the, the Justinian plague that emphasizes its very, very consequential nature. Um, I find it a little surprising that as you know, this evidence has come out, it hasn't induced any open-mindedness um, among those who, who want to minimize it. But um, you know, it'll it'll go on. We'll keep getting new um, new archaeological evidence. Um, I do think that there's pretty pretty good evidence for um, declines in in settlement and trade um, in the later sixth and early seventh century in parts of the the greater Roman and post-Roman world that we'll never be able to say with certainty are caused by plague, but we build up through um, circumstantial case that, that disease is this powerful factor. This disease um, is uniquely important in, in human history. Um, if you compare, it's not just the Black Death. Um, there's sometimes been implied that those of us who believe in the Justinian plague are sort of obsessed with the Black Death. It's really not just the Black Death. Like I was saying, if you go look at the sources for 17th century Europe, where we have very good sources, um, because the, the written record and the parish register record of the 17th century, where at the village level, you can reconstruct births, marriages, and deaths on an annual basis that are unlike anything we have for antiquity. Plague is, you know, you don't even need the Black Death. The, the plague in the 17th century is unlike anything else. In Northern Italy, it, it kills a third of the population in 1630 uh, in central and southern Italy in 1650s, um, the same. So um, I think all of that um, is very difficult um, to, to reconcile with, with the view that this is an inconsequential event. I think we have gone through a lot of the questions um, that were in the chat, even for for other um, speakers who have also now uh, bowed out and things like that. So if there's not any other pressing questions um, from the audience that's here, if there are, please do put in the chat or raise your hand. Um, I'll wait for a second right now for anyone to do that. But if um, there aren't any other additional questions, I think we can start to wrap this up and um, thank our speakers, uh, all of them and all of our panelists for their wonderful papers and for their time. Um, and especially our keynote speaker. So thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you, Al. It was, uh, I think, it, you know, we managed to explore many, many different um, aspects of environment and antiquity. And I think, you know, uh, this could lead to, you know, some further collaboration in the future and perhaps even another conference or 
or maybe something more physical like a publication. So we'll uh, we'll 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 take on board all of this and uh, we'll see to to find a way to move forward. But just wanted to say thank you to all the the speakers to to the audience as well for that contribution fantastic question and to matthew for <laughs> for being a great co-organizer and uh yeah i mean kyle obviously you were fantastic thanks again for 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 being a, a really really special keynote thank, thank you guys it was a great workshop thanks for listening to this podcast from antiquity and the anthropocene to access more podcasts from the workshop check out the humanities institute's podcast channels on apple soundcloud and on Spotify.